Are you someone who struggles with making decisions? Do you go back and forth and back and forth and then even once you know what you want to do, you question when you should actually put the decision into action? Should you do it now or should you just delay indefinitely slash forever? I really struggle with this sometimes, if you can't tell. And luckily for me and you, today's guest is a decision coach who literally helps people make and take action on difficult decisions. If you're deciding between two or a few big life choices, today's episode is for you. Welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. I'm Lauren LaGrasso. I'm an award-winning podcast host and producer, singer-songwriter, and multi-passionate creative. And this show is meant to give you tools to love, trust, and know yourself enough to claim your right to creativity and pursue whatever it is that's on your heart. Today's guest is Nell McShane Wolfhart. She's a decision coach, journalist, and writer, best known for her New York Times column, Carry On, as well as her writing for Travel and Leisure, Bon Appetit, Condé Nast Traveler, The Wall Street Journal, and for her book, The Great Stewardess Rebellion, as well as for coining the term decision coach, which is a job she literally created for herself because she loved giving advice. I love that she's a decision coach because so often, whether it's in therapy or coaching, the person you're literally paying to help you won't tell you exactly what to do. And honestly, sometimes that's good because you sometimes you just need to make the choice on your own. But sometimes, honestly, after years of schooling and being parented, we just want and need some clear direction to make some sort of movement in our lives. Sometimes I wish someone would tell me I have to do something, you know? So I found that person. It's Nell. From today's chat, you'll learn exactly what a decision coach is, Nell's best tips to make good and fast decisions, how to move past fear and guilt in decision making, tips to build confidence, and how to maintain focus and move through creative blocks. Oh, and also my mom, Joanne, has always struggled with decision making and cultivating self-trust. She's talked about that a few times on the show. So since she was in town for this recording, Nell was gracious enough to take some time to do a little on-air coaching session with her to help her make a decision she's been trying to make since summer 2022. So you'll hear my mom's coaching session too, which is very cool and super helpful. Okay, now here she is, Nell McShane Wolfhart. Today, I'm so excited to have you on. We've been literally going back and forth about this since October, and we finally made a decision for you to come on the show in February. So welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative. Thank you. I'm so glad that we worked this out. I'm excited to be here. Same here. I'm so excited to have you. So you are a decision coach. This is fascinating. Can you tell me what is a decision coach and how did you come to be one? Right. Well, that's a great question because it's a job that I made up. I mean, I just invented it and I'd never heard of such a thing before. Although now, you know, I've been doing it for 10 years and now I can see that there's like a few other people who are decision coaches out there. But I think I can claim the credit for coming up with the idea in the first place. It's literally just what it sounds like. I help people make big decisions and I just do it like one person, one decision, one hour long session, boom, make the decision, get on with your life. That's all I offer. That's all I do. And how did you decide that you wanted to monetize this? I've heard you on other interviews say like, I'm just somebody who's always given advice. And then I was like, well, might as well get paid. But like, what was the moment when you decided I'm going to make a website and make this a thing? 
I think it was actually my best friend's idea, probably because she was sick of me giving like unasked for advice, which is sort of a professional hazard is that you, you're always giving people advice that they're not necessarily looking for. So yeah, she was like, this could be really helpful and you always do this for me. And I mean, everyone in my family calls me for advice on decisions and it's like, yeah, I could be doing this for other people. And it's something I really enjoy it. And it feels so good to like help somebody get out of that sort of decision-making rut. I feel so much satisfaction myself helping them do that. Totally. I mean, I love that. I do have a question for you, though, because I also coach people and I feel the same struggle. I never like just like listening to somebody's problem and just like not offering something because if someone's in pain, I want to help. But a lot of people really don't want that. And it's not what's most helpful to them in that moment. So just on a personal note, I'm curious how do you decide whether or not to give somebody tips when they're in a moment of crisis, when it's just your personal life? Oh my God, Lauren, I struggle with this so much. When it's just like my own friends talking or my family talking, I have to really make an effort to be like, would you like to hear some advice or do you just want me to listen? Because I almost like cannot keep it inside me. I just have that fixer brain. Like I'm always like, well, obviously you should do this. Like I can see the solution. Let me just tell you. And no matter how right I might be, they don't always want to hear it. So I have to say it is like, it's a constant struggle. (laughs) Yeah, like I'm dealing with like massive discomfort when this happens now in my life, because in the past, I feel like in our past society, people welcomed fixer advice much more. There's like a big movement now of like, just let me feel it and let me move through it. And then if I want advice, I'll ask you, which is fine and totally great. But like, I have not been able to reroute my brain or my insides around this. So like, how do you deal with the discomfort when you really know what someone should do, but you're not allowed to tell them? Honestly, I mostly tell them anyway, Lauren, and I apologize for it in advance. It's just so hard to keep it inside. Yeah. (laughs) It's uncomfortable not to give advice when you sort of like know what the best thing is. But I do try to remind myself that everyone's a grown up. They get to make their own choices. Like really, they just want somebody to listen. And I just like squeeze a stress ball or something at the same time. That's a great thing. I need to get a stress ball. Maybe that's my next step. You said, though, in some of the other interviews I listened to that The reason you decided you were a good person to be a decision coach is because you had a track record in your own life. So can you go through some of the decisions you made that have led to the life you have now that you say is the life that you have always wanted and how you really saw that like, hey, I have a track record here. I could advise on this. Well, up until a few years ago, I was a professional travel journalist which for a lot of people is already kind of a dream job. I was freelance, but I wrote for like all the prestigious travel magazines. I had a column in the New York Times for a while where I interviewed celebrities about what they took in their carry-on luggage, which was truly the gig of a lifetime, like so easy and so much fun. (laughs) I've lived all over the world and moved to different countries. And right now I'm at a point in my career where like I do the coaching. I wrote a book that came out last year and I'm working on like a bunch of other projects. And I just feel like I'm so lucky. Like I get to do all these things that I want to do. And part of that, of course, is privilege and a safety net and white privilege and all those things, of course, obviously. And part of it is just like I make decisions fast and I take action on them like right away. If I have an idea for anything, like I might move somewhere or like maybe I'm going to start a little business or I even have an article I want to pitch, like I'll start doing that thing almost right off the bat. Because what's the worst that could happen? So I basically felt like I had built this life for myself that I think other people aspire to a little bit, not to sound like I'm bragging, but like I have a lot of freedom. I do really more or less what I want to do. And 
I thought like, okay, like people ask me sometimes how they can get a life like mine. And I'm like, well, just have to like make faster decisions (laughs) and not spend so long thinking about your options. Yeah. And I love the thing you said that you make decisions and you act on them quickly, because I think here's a big thing that a lot of people do, myself included. You know what the right decision is. You know it. Like you don't really need somebody to tell you what the right decision is. It's the space between knowing and acting that often is what is screwing us up. What's going on in that space? And how do you solve that piece for people? Well, first of all, people often do know what they want to do, but this sounds ridiculous. They don't know that they know. Like I get clients who come to me and within the first 10 minutes of a session, like it's clear to me that they really want to do one option and they don't want to do the other option, but they have not been able to sort of admit that fact to themselves, whether that's like fear of other people's opinion or because the option they don't want seems to be like the safer option. And so they feel like they ought to choose that one. And essentially they're coming to me to A, tell them, okay, you do want to do this and B, (laughs) to sort of check their work and make sure that the decision they're making is not like some bonkers, super risky, could ruin your whole life decision, which it almost never is. People in general have an idea of what they want, but sometimes they just need a little help confirming that, letting me like pull it out of them. And then, yeah, it's like once you've actually made the decision and you've admitted it out loud to yourself or to me or to whomever, then it becomes easier to take action. But a lot of people skip that step where they're like, even just say out loud, I want to do this. You know, they're always hedging their bets. And you talk about risk assessment. You say people are bad at risk assessment. What does that mean? I love talking about risk. And my experience has been through 10 years of coaching people is that people often think that one choice is the risky choice and one choice is the safe choice. You see this most often with things like jobs. Taking a new job is risky while staying at your current job is safe and like That's not necessarily true. I always talk about how in the United States, at least, we live in a society of at-will employment and your boss can fire you at any time for any reason. So like no job is actually safe. And if you take a new job and you don't like it, okay. Like the worst case scenario is that you're in a job that you don't like very much. And you're probably already in that scenario because you've been applying to other jobs. So like where actually is the risk? Like the actual risk is really low. But I think when people have been thinking about a decision for a long period of time, especially when they've been thinking about a decision for a long period of time, it feels so weighted down with risk and fear of regret and dread that it becomes almost impossible to like get yourself out of that sort of morass, which is such a shame. How do you get people out of that? Because, you know, these things are like deep seated. You know, a lot of times it's like familial lore that's been passed down generation to generation. How do you get rid of that, like sometimes literally epigenetic fear that's in you telling you if you make this choice to like leave your job and start a new business, you're going to die? Well, a little bit of tough love. (laughs) and a lot of just sort of like reframing, like the way I just talked about, you know, taking that new job offer or whatever. And like, okay, if we zoom out for a little bit and really assess like what is the worst case scenario if you took this new job, you'll see that like it's not actually much worse than where you are now. And it could be a lot better. So it is just reframing every decision in terms of like the realistic worst case scenario and the potential for like really improving your life. And One of the exercises that I ask people to do before a session is to 
just sketch out what they want their future life to look like. One year, five years, 10 years. And so often the change that feels the most risky to them or the option that feels the most daunting, like that's the only one that's going to get them to the life that they want while taking like the safer option or the so-called safer option is just going to kind of keep them in the same place. So I like to point that out to them that they're never actually going to get what they want unless they push themselves to take a little bit of a leap. Right. And not deciding is still deciding, too, I think is also a helpful thing to keep in mind. Like you're still making an active choice to stay where you are, right? 100%. Yes. This is part of what you say is you said making good decisions is making the life that you want. They're connected. So when you make a good decision, it should lead to the life that you want. Outside of like the one-year plan, the five-year plan, the 10-year plan, if you're really lost, let's say that someone listening to this is like, I don't even know where to begin. I feel like my life is so out of control. What can they do to start thinking about the kind of life they want and then drawing lines through their decisions to that life? That's a great question. I always ask people to do this exercise, which for some people is super familiar and very basic. And for other people, it's revelatory, but it always helps. And that's literally to make a list of your values. And I'm not talking religious values, moral values. I'm talking about the things that make up your everyday life and make it good. So for me, that list includes like getting nine hours sleep a night and never setting an alarm clock in the morning, <laughs> like always being able to wear sweatpants. It's a lot of physical comfort things in my case. <laughs> my physical comfort is very important to me. You know, being in charge of my physical body and not having to like go to an office where someone else says it need to be at a certain time or wear certain clothes or recognition for my work, financial security, like literally all those things that go into making my everyday life feel good. So I think starting there and making that list of values is super helpful because then, honestly, you can kind of even skip a lot of the decision-making process, look at your two options, see which one of them checks more boxes on your list of values, just go with that. See, you don't even have to book a session with me. You can just do that exercise and figure it out for yourself. Because when you make a decision that is not in line with your values, you're just taking a shortcut to being unhappy, honestly. Something that came up for me when you were talking about that is this thing you talk about called misplaced loyalty. And think there's a lot of that in a lot of people, especially a lot of women I know, where we feel like, oh, but what will they think of me? And that can range from what will society think of me on a greater level? What will my family think of me? What will my current employer think of me? I mean, like, it's wild. So explain what misplaced loyalty is and how it holds us back. Well, this comes up a lot in regards to jobs, amazingly, where people feel a sense of loyalty to their company, to their boss, to their coworkers. And so when they're calling me about whether or not they should take a new job, like that decision is often really like weighted down with these feelings of loyalty to the people they work with or the people above them, or this person got me that job in the first place. How could I leave? That would be so disloyal. But, you know, as I always like to say, like, you might be loyal to your company, but your company is not loyal to you. And if it becomes profitable to get rid of you, they will get rid of you. So, like, you really do have to look out for yourself in this regard. And leaving a company, people leaving is just a normal part of doing business. Nobody is irreplaceable. I don't want to dismiss those feelings because even if I tell somebody they're not important, of course they're important. Like, we feel disloyal to people. We feel a sense of obligation to people who have helped us out. But... We have to try and think of ourselves, especially career-wise, as a little bit more of a business and that it is just not logical to stay in a place for another couple of years because, you know, you're worried your colleagues will have to do your work once you leave. So let's say somebody is leaving a job and they're like going to go off and pursue their creative passion. They've decided they're going to do it, but they're terrified to tell their boss. 
Would you recommend they write a script? Like what's something they could do to get over that terror they're feeling? Maybe even get to the bottom of why they're feeling so scared and just like say the right thing that they want to say. I will say that getting to the bottom of why they're feeling so scared is not a priority for me. Like investigating any whys is not... Hmm. I think a good use of my time or really anyone's time. Sometimes the whys are not like, why am I this way? Like that's not actually important. Tell me why I'm someone who always digs deeper. So I'm actually so curious to know this. This is fascinating to me. You know, when it comes to making a decision, it's like people are think like, oh, like, well, why do I act this way? Why am I so indecisive? Why am I, why am I, why am I? And they can spend hours or days or weeks or months or years trying to figure out why, but I can tell you that the quality of their life will be improved immediately by just making some decisions and taking action on them instead of interrogating the why of it all. Like, <laughs> it's just a form of procrastination, honestly. I'm not saying we should never examine why we are the way we are or like why we behave in the way we behave if we're not happy with it. Of course we should. But like, that is a question for your therapist. And I feel like when people are stuck on a decision and they have to make a decision, interrogating the why is just like really, it's an ex- Excuse. Like it really is procrastinating. And if you make the decision, then you'll have like real information. I think in almost all cases, more doing and less thinking is yeah. helpful. <laughs> wow. Okay. You just blew my mind. So I'm going to stop asking why so much and just start doing more. Honestly, the way we make good decisions is not by like sitting at home and thinking like, why do I feel this way? Or would I like that option? Or would I like the other option? The only way to make a good decision is to try the thing you're thinking about. And A, almost every decision is reversible. And B, once you try it, okay, you like it, fantastic. Keep going, problem solved. You don't like it, okay. But now you know you don't like it and you didn't spend six months trying to like sit at home in your living room, figure out in advance if you would like it or not. Like you just get so much more done faster and you get real information faster. It's just like you can kind of get on with your life like a lot more efficiently. Yeah, every decision is reversible. That one's powerful. Of course they change the course of your life. Everything does. But why do people get so hung up and illogical about how binding a choice could be? That's a really good question. I think so much of it is caught up in fear of regret. Like we are just terrified of regret. We're terrified of feeling regret. We're terrified of looking back and thinking like that was the wrong decision. And I always try to encourage people to remember that the decision and the outcome are two different things and that you can control the decision and that like, None of us can see the future. If someone comes to me to help them make a decision, we're going to make the best possible decision based on the information we have at the time. What happens after that, we cannot control. Like whether you like a job or... So I think people are really afraid of making what they would call the wrong decision because they're not happy with the outcome. But And they beat themselves up for the decision. But the decision itself is almost neutral, you know? Like it was literally just a best guess. Mm, wow. That's powerful. So wait, let's circle back to the thing about the boss, because you said the why is irrelevant. But what would be your advice for somebody just doing it? Like if they're still feeling this fear, but they're going to do it anyway. Do you advise they write out a script? Do you advise they keep it to email? Like what is the best way to handle something like this where there is that fear around it, but we're still going to go for it? I love a script and not just for like workplace conversations, for relationship conversations, for like telling your parents you're moving out conversations, for any kind of conversation. It's great to write it down a script. 
Anticipate what the person might say in advance and write down your responses. Like the key to feeling better is just preparation. Not, as I said before, just like sitting home and thinking about it, but like actively preparing, imagining how the conversation will go, thinking up possible responses. I'm also a big fan of that advice people always give when it comes to negotiation, which is say what you want and then stop talking. Because, you know, silence makes people so uncomfortable. So if you have to deliver bad news, like to your boss, like you're leaving or something like that, just say that you're leaving and then stop filling the silence and then let them come up with a response. I like that. What a power play. That reminds me of something else you said. You said one of your biggest head starts in life was just being, seems like, born confident. And not everybody has that inner lion, you know, they have to figure out ways to build that as they go along. What is a tip you have for somebody who's out there right now feels like they're lacking confidence on how to start gaining that within themselves? Oh my God, that's such a good question. And if I could figure out the magic formula for that, like I'd be on my own private island somewhere. But (laughs) I think in general, like so much power comes from action I know I'm harping on about this, but like, you know, people are bad at making decisions. Okay. Practice making lots of little decisions, like mm-hmm. decide what you're going to have for dinner every day this week. And then just have that for dinner, like decide what you're going to wear every day this week. And then just wear that thing and build up confidence in your own decisions. Because you'll also realize that the quality of the decision is not in most cases affected by the amount of time you have spent thinking about it. That's not true for everything. If you're trying to choose between jobs, obviously you want to do your research and give it a really good think. If you're trying to switch careers, same thing. If you want to start a business, same thing for sure. But there is a point at which like there are diminishing returns in continuing to debate more. Yeah. So just in general, if you're trying to build up confidence, I would say just find little ways to take action in your everyday life. It does not have to be big sweeping, like I'm moving to France tomorrow kind of action. It can just be like, okay, like I'm signing up for this pottery class and then go. Right. And when you start to see that the results of your decisions are good, that like the outcome is good, then you feel more confident in those decisions and you're able to like upgrade to slightly bigger decisions. Yes. It's what I call microdosing courage. You may not have that full, like, I'm going to go, you know, start a new job and move to Siberia. I don't know why you'd want to move to Siberia. It could be fun though. (laughs) Who knows? But you might be able to, like you said, take a pottery class and then maybe you do something that scares you next week. And then by the end, like by the time it's time to make that big decision, you've gained all this courage from doing these teeny tiny little things and you're kind of like inoculated the same way a vaccine inoculates you against virus or disease. It's the same thing with making these tiny decisions and then being able to do something big. 100%. I 100% agree. Microdosing courage, microdosing decisions, anything that builds up that muscle is like going to pay off in the long term. Totally agree with you. So when you're met with somebody who has just like chronic anxiety, obviously I know that's like a mental health thing. I struggle with anxiety, so I get it. But how do you like suggest people circumvent their anxiety? Like I know action, but like what are some other tools you use when somebody's just spinning on something when they come to you? I will actually say that I try to filter out people with chronic anxiety a little bit. And I make a gentle suggestion that they see a therapist because 99% of people I can help, but the people who are like so caught up in that spiral of like circular thinking and anxiety, like I'm not trained to deal with that. And that's not something I could fix in a single session. Like I will make the decision for them. And I have had clients like this and we make the decision, 
but there's nothing I can do to stop their anxiety brain revisiting and revisiting and revisiting and revisiting, even though it's like abundantly clear to both of us what they should do. Again, people are just like have some general anxiety or occasional anxiety, or they're just they're chronically indecisive. That for sure I can help with. But that kind of like chronic anxiety where nonstop in your brain, that's for like a mental health professional, honestly. That's going to be the best way for them to improve their lives. Yeah, to get through that. Something you really focus on is fast decisions. Have you read the book Blink? Malcolm Gladwell? I think I've read articles about it. <laughs> okay, so you, you probably know. I mean, I'm sure you're using a version of what he talks about in that book anyway. But basically what he talks about in the book is like, you know, like the first second you see something, you know whether it's right or wrong for you. It's just we then second guess ourselves and like do all this circular thinking or, oh, I don't know if I should. Maybe I shouldn't. But you know in the first second and he proves it with all these different examples, even down to things where like, pick which one's poisonous, A or B. And the person like instantly knew just from looking at it. And this show is very woo-woo. I don't know if you've listened to any of the episodes, but I'm very <laughs> into like spirituality. And I love things that are tactical, but I also love figuring out like what's the more like spiritual woo component of it. Mm -hmm. So when you make a good fast decision, what does it feel like in your body? Like, can you walk us through what that good quick decision feels like? Energizing. And I've had many clients say this to me at the end of the call. They say like, I feel energized. It's like I gave them permission to do the thing they actually want to do. And they know what they're like. I always like to leave them with first steps. Like, okay, we've made the decision. So when you get off the phone, like here's, you know, one, two, three, here's your next steps. Here's how you like start taking action on the decision. And yeah. they feel energized because they have permission to do the thing they want to do anyway. They know how to go about it. And they're actually excited about doing it. I have definitely in many of my calls, I'm like getting up and walking around the room because <laughs> I'm energized and I'm like so hyped for them to like take action on this thing that's going to make their lives better. So it definitely feels like a energy surge, I think. You only do single sessions, so you don't do like multiple coaching packages. It's not like an ongoing thing. It's one session to make a decision. Why did you decide to do it that way? And what's like the positive effect of just having the one session? I initially, when I started out, I offered like a package of like three sessions to make like a very big decision. But I very quickly realized that by the time you're coming to a stranger on the internet to help fix your problem, you do not need to spend more time thinking and talking about that decision. You have thought about it enough. You've got your pros and cons list. You've been thinking about it, like, again, for weeks or months. I mean, I definitely have helped people make decisions they've been thinking about for years. Wow. So, like, extra sessions are not useful. It happens in more or less than an hour. There's not an exact time limit because I never want anyone to feel rushed. Like, we take as long as it takes. But it's a pretty efficient process because it's just, like, I ask a lot of questions. We do sort of a 360-degree review of their life because, you know, every big decision, as you said, like it affects all these different parts of your life. But we're going to make that decision in that session and then we're going to figure out your next steps and then you're going to start taking action. Like more talking and more thinking is not going to benefit you. Although people often want to come back for another session or like they tell me, I think this will need more than one session. And I'm like, no, it's one session. <laughs> and like, you cannot come back <laughs> unless you have like a huge new piece of information. Like there's no returning. The decision was a good one. Start going. It's so nice because barely anything in like the self-help, self-improvement world is ever like one and done. They're always like, but wait, there's more. You're still not fixed. And it's so refreshing <laughs> yeah. to hear from somebody who actually wants to help and then get you out of there. People often say like, I cannot believe we fixed that in one session. So I know that it's working and I know that more sessions are not going to like change the decision. I have been doing this for so long. Like 
I can figure out that decision in an hour. I can tell you why it's a good decision and we can figure out what you're going to do next. Like, boom, boom, boom. Like more time is unhelpful. It's not good for them. Like I want people to, like I said, less thinking, more doing. And I feel like I'm sort of making myself sound like some kind of decision, like fascist, like (laughs) issuing decisions and being really tough. But I will say that I'm genuinely like a very empathetic person and that the sessions are actually fun and we usually laugh a lot. But that, like, I'm not going to let you get away with any excuses. So I think tough love is probably mm. the right way to put it. Yeah. And your tough love doesn't feel bad. Like, there's some people whose tough love feels bad and angry. The way you give tough love, from what I can tell from being in this session with you, is in a very kind, warm way. It's a lot easier to hear unpleasant things when somebody's doing it with a genuine smile and with an open heart. Yes, because that's my experience talking to other people. And yeah, when people come to me, it's like comfortable. Being comfortable is the main thing. And then, yes, it's a gentle push in the right direction, let's say. So we're going to do something kind of cool here. I was telling you before the session, my mom is an amazing person, but chronically indecisive. I mean, last night at dinner, we took my dad out to dinner for his birthday And she had a five-minute conversation with the waiter about all the different options and iterations of the two (laughs) salmon dishes she was choosing between. Long story short, I was wondering, and you so graciously said, yes, if you would take us through what it might look like in a typical session with you. Now, my mom's not going to be bringing up an earth-shattering decision because that would take an hour like you normally do. But she's been going back and forth for six months about, first of all, she's been... This is wild. She's been walking on a bone-on-bone ankle for 20 years, but she's been going back and forth for six months. She's been having knee problems the past couple years about whether she should get these injections, what type of injections she should get, et cetera. So I don't, I don't know. Nell, you, you take it away. Like, tell us what she needs to tell you in order for you to advise her. But she's struggling with this thing with her ankles and her knees. So Okay. Well, I will ask the first question that I always ask at the beginning of every session, which is in one single sentence, what is the decision you want to make today? Oh, well, I guess the decision I want to make today is when I am going to get the injections in my knees. There was, I should just preface that with saying there's been a whole like months of deciding, well, should I get the visco injection? Should I get the platelet-rich therapy injection? Should I get the placental stem cell injections? I mean, There's so many injections none of us knew about. It's literally every time I make a decision, I don't know why. I've been like this my whole life, but it seems like it's gotten worse just as years have gone on. So now these are really important decisions. Even at dinner last night, I was having a problem with the menu. But (laughs) I don't know why it is that I'm having such a problem making decisions. But specifically now, I was going to get the injections before Christmas. And then I decided I waited so long that it was too close to Christmas. What if there's some type of complication? I don't want to... She asked for one sentence, mom. (laughs) No, no, no. She gave me one sentence. That was good. This is just background. That's fine. I I always ask people to make it one sentence because sometimes they're not even 100% sure what they're calling me about. So making them put it into one sentence like is clarifying for them as well as for me. Okay. Okay. So are your options, Joanne, like any time between now and death? Like what time periods are we talking about choosing? Are we choosing between? Well, I think I probably need to get the injection sooner rather than later. So I put it off long enough. I should have probably done it last fall. And now I think I probably need to do it as soon as possible. But I always seem to find, oh, I'll just wait until because of this, you know, type thing. And I have to say that I really admire you 
I can't even imagine like doing what you're doing is such great work because I can't even imagine being able to advise somebody on making a decision when I can barely make a decision. So I really admire what you do. (laughs) I often find that like indecisive people sometimes are great at making decisions for other people, but when it comes to themselves, (laughs) it's it's a real struggle. Okay. So I do want to say first off that you... You're not really making a decision because you already know. I mean, you pretty much just said, you know, you should get it done as as soon as possible. And Mm -hmm. that every time you're putting it off, it's essentially an excuse, right? Like, oh, I'll just wait till Christmas is over or like we're having a birthday or maybe I'm taking this trip. And that all three of us probably know that like, there's never a perfect time, right? It's sort of like when you're choosing to have a baby. (laughs) Sometimes you just got to do it. So you're not calling me to be like, should I get these injections? You've already decided you need them. I guess your doctor says you need them. You figured out what kind you need. So I will say that this is not so much a decision of when. The question really is like, why aren't you doing it tomorrow? And I can only, I'm assuming that it's because there's some fear, like because, you know, you're afraid it's going to let you up. Right. So this is not a decision. This is more of like, you need to address the fear. Are you afraid of being incapacitated? Are you afraid of having to be stuck at home? Are you afraid of other people having to take care of you? Like, what specifically are you afraid of? Boy, you really, you're so perceptive. No, you're (laughs) right. I mean, I think I'm afraid that there might be some complication or some side effect or after I get this visco supplement injection, should I have gotten the other one? Did I make the right decision? You know, and I think it's a fear of a side effect of the doctor says there's basically he's never seen a side effect type of reaction, allergic reaction or anything. But you know, it's all that type of thing, which is I rationally, I can say it's ridiculous. But then when it comes to actually thinking about it emotionally, I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, so... Right. You're right. That's exactly what it is. I guess I'm afraid that, you know, there could be some type of side effect or reaction or why didn't I do the other one instead of this type of injection? In this case, honestly, you, I mean, you can sort of offload the decision-making responsibility onto your doctor, right? You can let them choose what kind of injections and let them like sign you up for a time slot or whatever. And this is something I love to do is like just delegate. You know, if there's an expert around, like, I'm not making the decision. Like, let them tell me what to do. It feels so good to put the responsibility in somebody else's hands. So if you're actually like second guessing, like what kind of injection you might want to get or what the side effects are going to be, or you're wondering about all this stuff, like you brought it up to your doctor. That's great. They said they've never seen a side effect. That's good news. But I would just say like, doctor, what would you recommend? And make up your mind to do whatever they recommend. Like they know a lot about this and you know a little and I know nothing. So, so I think we should, when you're making a decision, like, let's let the person who knows all that is possible to know about it, make the call. Okay. That's great advice. Yeah. And if something goes wrong, at least you have somebody to blame. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> okay. Well, that's, that's great advice. For like the risk assessment piece now, like what parts could she like figure out? Where is there actually risk? Where is there not risk? Would that be something you would advise her to talk through with her doctor? Should she do her own research? Like I know that piece comes a lot in regards to like people being afraid to make a choice. Don't do your own research. Don't use Dr. Google. (laughs) That's not a good idea. You have a professional on hand, ask them for sure. So I would say, okay, you're feeling scared because of these potential risks, these potential side effects, but you've Mm -hmm. already done the thing that I would have advised you to do, which is like, go to your doctor and ask, like, what side effects have you seen? How have people ended up after this? Like, you've already done that. 
And they said it's basically as safe as you can expect, like as safe as it gets. And they have no experience with any of these kind of side effects. So the idea of like getting over that fear, like that fear is not a rational fear, right? That fear is just like a, it's a fear we all have. It's why we put off going to the doctor when we think yeah. something might be wrong. Like we all, I have that fear myself. Like I'm very like, I'm always putting off doctor's visits. So we all have that experience. We all have that fear. And I think eventually the point of like the quality of your life, if you don't get these injections, is probably going to deteriorate to the point where either the injections won't help or you're so miserable that you're forced to go get them. But I am like the world's biggest proponent of do the hard thing first. So then that like the good part that comes afterwards is as long as possible. Like right now you're in this limbo where you're not physically comfortable because of your, your knee and your ankle. And you're not mentally comfortable because you have this big decision that's weighing on you. So if you go and get these injections, like you get to the good part where you're not having those issues anymore. And like, why let this bad part stretch out for even longer? That's so true. I feel a lot better. <laughs> you're talking to really? you. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you. You're amazing. I appreciate okay, it. Okay. Now, one thing I occasionally do with people who are like trying to like screw up the courage to make a big decision is I will send them an accountability email to be like, have you made that appointment? Have you taken that job? Have you divorced your husband or whatever it is? <laughs> if they if they just need like sometimes not, yeah. it doesn't work for everybody, but we all have different ways of accountability, whatever works for us. So if you want, if you actually want to like make up your mind and get this thing done, I can email you in like two weeks and be like, Joanne, have you scheduled the injections? <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> really? I would okay. love that. If you have, you know, time to do that, that would be wonderful. I would love that and appreciate it. It would be absolutely be my pleasure. Okay, so uh, Lauren can give me your email address. And then in two weeks, you are going to get an email from me saying, have you scheduled those injections? And okay. I will scold you if not. Okay, that sounds great. I appreciate that great advice. I feel more calm and relaxed about it, and I feel really good about it. Boy, I might enlist your services in the yeah. future. You have a new client now. You're going to have her every week. You're going to get her before our dinners. We're going to be calling you about the salmon. But I really appreciate your great advice, and I appreciate giving your precious time to talk to me, and I appreciate you. Thank you so much, Nell. God bless you. It was my pleasure. And uh, yeah, feel free to call me anytime, but not about this decision. We already made okay. this decision. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> right. Thank you so right. much. I really appreciate it. So Nell, thank you so much for that. That was awesome. It reminded me of something I saw in one of the other interviews you did. You talked about how you're not adverse to people using negative emotions to help them decide and take action. Tell me about that. Okay, so this is controversial because I think people have sort of absorbed the idea that like any kind of negative motivation is bad. And I don't know whether that's because, you know, we're kind of as a society getting more comfortable with like therapy and therapy phrases and talk like that, which is like all to the good, in my opinion. But people think that like being motivated by negative emotions is a bad thing. But I don't actually think that's true because I think that sometimes it's the only thing that works. Like, as I was telling your mom, everyone has different things that actually make them get things done, right? For some people, it's the carrot. It's the reward. That's what helps them take action. For some people, it's the stick. It's like the fear of punishment. It's the fear of losing something. It's the bad fear. So First of all, you need to figure out if you're a carrot person or a stick person. And if you are a stick person, threat is a strong word. <laughs> Threatening yourself. But like just knowing what your accountability style is can be helpful. Like I tell a lot of people, especially for someone who's been trying to struggle with a big decision, this happens a lot. A lot of people call me to ask whether or not they should end their marriage, you know, or their wow. long-term relationship. 
And if you've been thinking about it, you've usually been thinking about this for like a year or two years. They know what the answer is, right? So like we pull that answer out, we tell them like how to do it. But there's also, I think there can be some power in saying to that person, okay, you spent two years trying to make this decision. Like, do you want to be calling me again a year from now in the exact same position, not having made any progress in either direction? Everything in your life is the same, but you're a year older. And so sometimes that like people realize like, oh no, like I don't want that to be me. Like that thought is scary. Like it should be scary being stuck in that limbo for another year. That should be a little scary, but if it helps you take the action that you know is going to make your life better, I kind of think it's worth it. I mean, I have two reflections on that. One is I am a person who tends to react. I mean, I was raised Catholic. Listen, I was <laughs> I was raised in an Italian Catholic household. Shame and guilt were two of the main courses on the table along with the right. pasta. But I think I'm trying to become more of a carrot person because for me, that just doesn't feel good. Even though I know it's effective, it doesn't feel good. But that said, as I continue to try to become more of a carrot person, I can use the stick part of me to motivate myself. (laughs) And hopefully maybe the stick Uh will get me over the bridge to the carrot. So that's my first thought. My second thought is the thing you brought up actually isn't negative and it isn't actually fear. It's like, do you care about yourself or not? Like, do you want to have a loving relationship with yourself and potentially somebody else who could be better for you in the future? Or would you rather stay in this stagnant negative thing? You have two options, glass half full or glass half empty of how you can look at it. But to me, what you're saying is actually, would you like to have a better life? Because you can. And if you stay where you are, your life is going to stay the same or get worse. I think that's super insightful. And actually, I should reframe that with some of my clients. Like, do you care about yourself or not? I think that's a much better way to put it. It's not as threatening. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, both are effective. You're essentially saying the same thing, right? You're saying like, Do you want to be in the same place in a year or would you rather have a better life? Because you can make a choice right now that will give you a better life. Because I was in a seven-year-long relationship and for at least five of those years, I was going back and forth and back and forth on it until something terrible happened where I was like, well, I can't unsee that. Now I know I can scoot. And I don't regret it. Like weirdly, I think I needed that time and I'm with an amazing partner now. So it all led up to that. But I could have gotten out of that a lot sooner than I did. I knew within a year or two, you know, but if someone like you had approached me and given me that terminology, it probably would have given me the clarity I needed to say, okay, no, I want a happier life. This isn't getting better. The same thing keeps happening over and over again. I think it's powerful. Good. Yeah. I mean, I think it really depends, like you said, you know, on your style and like what works for you. Even just having like a separate person who's going to hold you accountable and accountability buddy is super effective for most people. Like that even doesn't have to be like, you know, negative or positive. It can just be literally like someone is going to check in with you every day to make sure you, you know, wrote your 500 words or you went to the gym or whatever it is. Like just having somebody check in is enough to like incentivize a lot of people. So yeah, just becoming familiar with whatever style like helps you get things done, I think is really helpful. I want to talk a little bit about you outside of this decision making part of your life, because this show is about creativity and being a multi-passionate creative and exploring your different passions. And you have so many talents. You're also an incredible writer. So I wonder if you could share a little bit about what you do outside of decision coaching and how you balance it all. 
Sure. I just like love to have a lot of projects going on at once. You can even see with my wall of post-its, like each one is like a different thing that I'm working on. I just find it much more interesting. Recently, I published a book last year called The Great Stewardess Rebellion, which is a nonfiction book about how stewardesses in the 1960s and 70s basically like staged this revolution for American working women. And we're benefiting from that today, but nobody knows about it. And that was a project that was like just doing one thing for a year and a half, which was very unusual, especially for someone who had gone into that from freelancing when you're doing 45 things at once all the time. Like I said, I was a travel journalist for a long time, freelancing, constant hustle, which is what freelancing as a journalist is. So it was kind of a relief to settle down and write this one book on this topic that I found like super interesting. And yeah, now I'm working on a possible coaching podcast. I'm doing decision coaching. I'm exploring other couple of book ideas. I you know, have like a variety of little irons in the fire and it just, you know, it's, it keeps things more interesting and is a very enjoyable place to be right now. How do you work on multiple things at once and maintain focus? What are your tips for that? So you're saying not just run and put out whatever fires. Yeah, basically, like, do you have a method? Like, I know some multi-passions are like, oh, I spend two hours a day on, you know, if it's me, like my music and then two hours a day on my podcast, you know, like, do you section it off or are you kind of just like, bing, bing, you know, whack a moling whenever it comes up? What's your way of approaching all these different projects? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, I'm kind of like a productivity nut. So I'm always obsessed with like getting things done and different methods for productivity and new to-do apps and all those sorts of things. Like the post-its are just a way to like, you know, keep my mind organized. So I love all that sort of thing. It's maybe a little more whack-a-mole, but basically I just keep like a really good to-do list. And I like all my to-dos for all the days in the future are on there. And honestly, it's like being through the fire of being a freelancer for so long. Like you just have to get things done and you have to get things done to deadline. And so I have just like built that muscle over the years. I was not like this 10 years ago, but now I basically sit down I see the to-do list and I get it done. And I try and, you know, use the method of like least worst. Like if there are two things I need to get done that day and I don't really want to do either of them, then like I can just do the one I don't want to do the, <laughs> the least, if that makes <laughs> sense. And then like, you know, like I'm allowed to choose the least worst one to work on. And I found that effective. I also kind of find that's true for like exercise. Like I could work. If I don't feel like working, I can exercise. But like I can't just lie on the sofa and watch TV. So it's basically like whatever I feel like doing at the moment that's still on the prescribed list, I guess. I get that because sometimes when I'm busiest is the only time I want to clean, you know, because it's exactly. like, well, the cleaning right. sounds better to me than writing out this 15 page report or whatever it is that I have to do. A hundred percent. Productive procrastination, Lauren. That's what it's all about. Yes, <laughs> exactly. I love it. <laughs> the PP. Okay, can you tell the story of how you got your column in the New York Times? Because I think this is an incredible story and just such an important thing for anyone listening who has a dream to hear that they can aim high first. They don't have to go for the lowest thing that they think they could possibly get. They could go for their actual dream first. 
yeah, I had an idea. You know, I was freelancing a lot for all these different travel magazines and writing reasonably frequently for the Times travel section. And I had an idea for a column. Every freelancer wants a column because it's like regular income. I always love those what's in your handbag features, you know, for celebrities. Like, I want to know what kind of gum they're carrying around. And I was like, oh, travel. It could be like, when you're taking your carry-on luggage and we could interview celebrities. And originally I thought, okay, I could pitch this to maybe like the Travel and Leisure website or something. And if you're familiar with journalism at all, you know that websites pay a lot less than print. And then I was just like, well, why don't I like try for the top? And like, see what they say. And so I just like emailed an editor at the Times. It was like, I have this idea for a column. What do you think? And it just happened to be the right time. She had been thinking about doing something with celebrities. And I was there proposing one. So she was like, "Mm, okay. And it just reminded (laughs) me that like, you should always try that. Like there is literally no downside to pitching the big publication, to pitching the big company, to like coming up with the idea and aiming for the top. Because there's this expression that I learned in Brazil, which is you already have the no. Mm. so you like you might as well ask because like if you don't ask you've got the no already right but if you do ask you might get the yes like there's always a chance you'll get the yes and if you're in the habit of pitching a lot of things like if you are a freelancer or self-employed in any way like you do get learned to do it pretty quickly and not stress about it too much but I just feel like if you pitch a whole bunch of ambitious stuff at once it does end up being sort of a numbers game and eventually someone says yes to one of your ideas and then you forget about the fact that like 14 other people said no but You should always start at the top because you can always come down if you need to. But like, don't undersell yourself. Don't, you know, what are they saying? Like, negotiate yourself down. Yeah. You know, I thought that story was just really inspiring. And I guess you kind of answered it. I was going to ask you, how do you deal with rejection? Because that's something that's so difficult for so many of us. But basically, it seems like you just put out as many rods as you can and figure you're going to get one with the fish. Oh, it's difficult for me too. I hate getting rejections. Like I've gotten so many no's in my life for pitches, for ideas, for jobs, and I hate them. (laughs) But absolutely, if you have one idea and you send it out to one person and they say no, it's devastating. But if you have, like I said, like 14 other ideas out there that people are thinking about or emails that they're reading or whatever, then the one no is not nearly as devastating. It's still mildly devastating, but only like one fifteenth as much. It's a good fraction. Yeah. Do you ever get blocked? Like, what do you do when you're creatively blocked to move through that and find a new idea? Oh, I just stare at the wall, Lauren. Like, I after my book came out last April, I was just like, I'm someone who has a ton of ideas. Like, I have more ideas than I've ever have time to do, and half of them I don't even want to do. But like, <laughs> I have lots of ideas, projects, apps, podcast, whatever, like, stupid things that I will never ever do. And then after my book came out, it was just like crickets in my brain, like absolutely nothing because I still had some of my advance left over. I was in the very lucky position of like not having to like hustle and try and like bring in a lot of money right away. So I just did the coaching that came in and I just let myself kind of stare at the wall. Oh, that's so beautiful. It was so great. And then after a few months, I started having ideas again. And now I'm like working on way too many things. (laughs) But I do think like if you have the luxury to just stare at the wall, absolutely stare at the wall. Like we do not have to go, go, go all the time. And if not, like, just do the bare minimum. Just, you know, you can't force it. Sit at home and do what you need to do to get by. And then let your brain just, like, sink, sink, sink into nothingness for a while. Go into the sunken place, but the good one, not the one in that movie. (laughs) (laughs) No, I totally agree. That's something I've learned through doing this show is that rest is actually a vital part of the creative process. If you don't take time to rest and rest your brain and rest your body, then you can't have this wild influx of ideas like you're having right now because 
you're just always tapped out. You know, you're never going to be as open to creative input as you could be if you actually took the time to just be still for a minute. So I think it's so brilliant that you did that. I mean, I didn't really have a choice. I could have like gone out there and got like some random crappy work just to like be doing something. But like, again, you have to be in a position of like considerable privilege to take a couple of months and just stare at the wall. So I absolutely want to acknowledge that like not everybody can do that. But I do think doing the most sort of like boring work possible is totally fine. And if you just like the bare minimum and if you're doing other work, like C plus is fine. Don't aim to put in like A plus work all the time. Just C plus is good. What is the thing you've done so far in your creative career that you're most proud of or you feel represents you the most? That's a good question. I don't know if starting the coaching business counts as a creative enterprise. Are you kidding me? Well, first of all, like, let's talk about the fact that you invented a job. Like, you can't think (laughs) of something much more creative than that. You're like, oh, decision coaches don't exist. I'm going to make myself one and invent the profession. And it's such a brilliant profession. And it's something that's so needed because that's my frustration with therapy a lot of the time. I love my therapist. She's amazing. But sometimes it's like, just tell me what the fuck to do. I'm so tired. Like, obviously, I feel like I have pretty good self-knowledge. The self-trust is where I lack. And that's what I say. The point of the show is to love yourself, trust yourself, and know yourself enough to go after what's on your heart. I think you have to have all three of those. That's something that from listening to you talk, from reading interviews you've done, you have the self-love, self-trust, and self-knowledge. And oftentimes, even if you're missing one of those, you can't make good decisions. So long story short, I think you're providing people a tremendous service. And it seems like from the way you coach, you're also endowing them with the tools that they need to make those decisions for themselves in the future. Yes, I really do try to, like, especially the exercises that I described to you, which like, again, anyone can do. You do not need to come to me for a session. Like you can make good decisions just using those exercises. Those are really helpful in making future decisions because you brought this up earlier, like the idea of like going from where you are now to where you want to be in the future. Like which option can you choose that you can draw a straight line to the future? Not the squiggly line that's going to take like four times as long, like the straight line. I do give them tools for making decisions in the future, things they can refer to that are helpful. I guess it's somewhat creative. Starting a business, I think, is kind of creative and you are constantly learning, which it's wonderful, but you do find yourself making so many mistakes, but that's probably Mm. character building. Yeah, I know. I wish that was avoidable, but it seems like it's (laughs) just not, unfortunately. You're amazing. I'm so grateful that you came on the show. Is there one tip or tool you'd like to leave our listeners with today if they're in the middle of making a decision and struggling, like what's the one thing for them to think about that's going to help them get over the hump and make the choice? My first recommendation would be to do those two exercises because I think they're really helpful. And the second one would be to take the amount of time that you think you need to make the decision and cut it in half and find a way to find accountability and really enforce that deadline. Because if you are really buried in the morass of decision-making It's like extremely hard to pull yourself out of it and more time spent on it. Like I said, it's not going to improve the quality of the decision. So you need to just like give yourself a timeline, cut it in half, and then find some way to hold yourself accountable or have someone else hold you accountable so you can make that decision and start taking action because action is always, always, always better than inaction. Yes, that's so true. That's so true. My dad is a financial planner and he said the biggest thing that they say in his business is, activity solves all problems. Oh, love that. Yes, absolutely love that. Yeah, I will say that that is true like 99.9% of the time for sure. Nell, you're awesome. Thanks for helping us decide today. I hope you have a beautiful day. Thank you so much, Lauren. This was so much fun. 
Thank you for listening, and thanks to my guest, Nell McShane-Wolfhart. For more info on Nell, follow her at NellMW, and visit DecideToMoveForward.com to book a session with her. You can also visit NellMcShaneWolfhart.com to learn more about Nell's creative journey and find a copy of her book, The Great Stewardess Rebellion. Thanks to Rachel Fulton for helping edit this episode of Unleash. You can follow her at Rachel M. Fulton. Thank you to Liz Full for the show's theme music. Follow her at Liz Full. And again, thank you. If you like what you heard today, remember to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple podcast or wherever you get your podcasts share the show with a friend and post about it on social media tag me at lauren lagrasso and at unleash your inner creative and i will repost to share my gratitude also tag the guests at nell mw so she can share as well my wish for you this week is that you make a decision you've been avoiding use some of nell's techniques and trust yourself in your choice you can do it i love you and i believe in you talk with you next week